Hey folks, this is Mike Cosper, and you're listening to a special preview of one of the podcasts I'm producing for Harbor Media. The show is called The Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, and it's a podcast about faith and culture. Normally, I won't start the show with an intro like this, but I wanted to take a moment and explain why we're starting with this show and this story. First, I think the story you're about to hear offers a glimpse into what's happening with Christians in our culture, sort of a close-up look at a broader phenomenon. Second, it's a story that involves me in an intimate way. It might help you understand why I'm starting Harbor. Andy Crouch says that if you want to change culture, you have to make culture, and that's what we're after. We want to tell stories that help Christians understand what's happening in the world around them and to navigate their way through it. So thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy it. And we hope you share it with everyone you know. Okay, on with the show. In the fall of 2006, I was on staff at Sojourn Church in Louisville, Kentucky. We just purchased an old elementary school and we renovated it for our church home. But we wanted to make use of it beyond Sunday services. And so we decided to start an art center. We called it the 930, and in ways that surprised all of us, it took off, took on a life of its own. At the heart of the 930 was a gallery and a music venue. And at a recent gathering at church, I asked people what their favorite moments were or their favorite shows. Uh, a solo Cool Hand Luke show. Damien Gerardo and Parade Schedule. Matthew Perryman Jones, uh, singer-songwriter from Nashville. The 930 was in the heart of an on-the-rise urban neighborhood called Germantown. At the time, lots of young people were moving in, buying up homes, renovating houses. They were young professionals, artists, entrepreneurs, musicians, and lots of them went to our church. Nearby, restaurants were opening, and dive bars were turning into hipster hangouts. I remember a friend of mine at the time, a jazz guitarist, saying that Germantown was becoming Louisville's Brooklyn, a hub for the city's creative energy. So we saw all of this as a shared value. We thought, we love the arts, you love the arts. Let's make use of this space that would sit empty all week long otherwise and make the neighborhood a better place. Jose Gonzalez, Uncle Earl and Abigail Washburn, Woven Hand. Jeremy Ennick, who I loved specifically because of Sunny Day Real Estate. It's worth mentioning that these weren't necessarily Christian bands. It was never our goal to create a Christian subculture or to host a Christian coffee house where you trick people into thinking they're at a casual hangout and then ambush them with an altar call. Instead, we wanted the 930 to have a life and identity all its own, kind of separate from the church. We wanted neutral ground. And we wanted to lock arms with our neighbors and work for the common good and flourishing of the city. So the best shows that I saw at the 930 was Grizzly Bear. And I didn't really know who Joe Henry was at the time. And so that, that kind of opened my mind to Joe Henry. So Joe Henry and Grizzly Bear at the 930. Uh, Over the Rhine was amazing. Over the Rhine? Over the Rhine. I think the most memorable band for me was Danielson. Uh, and I think the thing that made that most memorable for me is that uh, Will Oldham was there. If you've never heard of Will Oldham, he's kind of this indie rock legend. He's also known as Bonnie Prince Billy, and he's been in all kinds of bands, and he's influenced a generation of indie rock and folk musicians. He's also a lifelong Louisville guy. And before the show started, he was doing yoga poses in front of the stage, just kind of off to the side. Of course, if you come to Louisville today, you won't see a show at the 930. Uh, I missed the 930. It was a great time. Had some great shows. There's some great community around it, too. Because the 930's gone. From Harbor Media, you're listening to The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea, a podcast about faith and culture. I'm your host, Mike Cosper, and on each episode of our show, we ask a question about the intersection of faith and culture, and we tell stories to try to answer the question. So what happened to the 930? Well, today I'm going to tell that story, and with it, I'm going to try to answer the question, why Harbor? Why am I starting the Harbor Institute and Harbor Media? What do we hope to accomplish? And why should this matter to you, our listeners? I think the 930's rise and fall helped to answer that question. 
It's a story that points to where we're headed as a culture, and it reveals the pressure that Christians are feeling. That pressure is the result of a collision of worlds. On one hand, a world that's been called a post-Christian or a secular age, and on the other, the world of faith, the kingdom of God. So why harbor? Stay with us. Kevin Janes ran the music venue at the 930 Arts Center. I got involved with the 930, I guess it was December of 2006. Michael Winters was the curator for the art gallery at the 930, and he ran the day-to-day operations. There were studios throughout the building that were the homes to sculptors, painters, filmmakers, graphic designers, and even a skateboard company. We started the 930 as a way to be good stewards of this facility that we had. We also just had a lot of youthful, creative energy. Together, the three of us were kind of a team. I was on staff at the church and oversaw the big picture of the 930. Michael ran the art gallery and the studios, and Kevin booked shows. And from the very beginning, people kind of struggled to understand why a church would do this. Where's the catch? Where's the bait and switch? We would get some emails from artists, from fans, innocent questions like, oh, you're affiliated with the church? That's, that's cool. Then others were like, you guys are being subversive. You're intentionally trying to rope people in. So it kind of ran the gamut you know, of, um, of different responses. For the most part, though, the idea of the Arts Center was embraced. Right away, we found support and allies. We had some support from some fairly prominent local musicians and artists and radio DJs even. Folks like WFPK and Billy Hardison, Production Simple, they were very much in support of what we were doing. WFPK is a local public radio station, and Billy Hardison ran Production Simple, a company that booked and promoted concerts all around town. And the 930 had a great relationship with both of them. There was a period of about, I would say, 12 months where the 930 was kind of You know, we were being talked about positively in the city. Artists loved it, um, fans liked it. We were getting more and more high-profile shows. More and more shows were filling up, even a few sellouts and national touring artists coming in. Within a few months, the 930 gained a reputation as a great place to see shows. There was no alcohol served, so crowds never got rowdy or drunk. Seating was in the round, so wherever you sat, you had a great view of the stage. By the fall of 2007, Kevin Janes was featured in a news story highlighting emerging leaders in Louisville's art scene. Things were going well, though there were occasionally awkward moments. One memory I have in particular was um, Yola Tango. Like a lot of the bands that played the 930, Yola Tango is an indie rock band. But unlike most of them, they are iconic. They'd been around for decades and were deeply influential on the bands that came after them. For our little venue to book this show was a big, big deal. They had no idea that the 930 was affiliated with Sojourn until they got there for load-in that day, the day of the show. It came to pass, I don't know, I can't remember exactly how it was, if they were, you know, reading Facebook messages or something, but some fan alerted, you know, the lead singer, Ira Kaplan, to to the fact that we were affiliated with the church and all that. During the Yola Tango show, when they were on stage, they started to say something about the venue, which always made you nervous. Like, what are they going to say? I just remember, like, how they, they talked about it from the stage, about how they, they played all the, you know, the, the grossest dives in Louisville, they played all these different places, but they'd never played a church before. You have to understand, the folks in, in Yola Tango were are very uh, liberal politically and socially. I, I remember them saying something like, where are we and why are we here? <laughs> sort of how they grappled with it was they said they played a cover of a kink song called All God's Children. 
um, which I don't know if you know the song, but it, it's very much a universal uh, sort of message in the song. And to us, you know, doing this for a couple of years, like it wasn't a big deal to have quote unquote non-Christian bands playing this space. But for them, it was a first for them. 25 years as a touring band and never experienced something like this. Most of our events went this way. People felt welcomed. Artists felt appreciated. But we had a wake-up call in the spring of 2008. We were contacted by a reporter named Stephen George. At that time, he was writing for a news weekly called The Leo, a very left-leaning alternative newspaper. And to some degree, we were all ambivalent about the story he might write. And we worried. Could The Leo, with its hostility towards all things conservative and religious, be positive about work that evangelical Christians were doing in the art scene in the city? Stephen, who declined to be interviewed for this story, spent a few days talking with staff at the church, attending a show and a gallery opening, and he even came to a worship service. At one point in an interview that I sat in on, one of the pastors asked him point blank, hey, what's this story going to be about? We're giving you all this time and energy, and it'd be a shame if the whole story was about our views on homosexuality. Stephen actually laughed, and he waved the question off. No, he said, this isn't gotcha journalism. And for a few days, we were relieved. Maybe he got it. Maybe he saw that the 930 was an effort at Common Good. Maybe he saw that we never handed out tracts or pressured people to attend our church. We never made a distinction between Christian and non-Christian artists. Instead, we were trying to be faithfully present to the community. We wanted to love our neighbors. So how did the story turn out? Well, I've actually got a copy of the Leo right here. First, let me describe the image on the cover. It's a photo from a Sojourn worship service. There are three or four faces on there, most blurry except one. It's a tall guy with his hands in the air, smiling, eyes closed, face lifted heavenward. It looks a lot like the cover of a mid-90s worship record. The headline reads, Smells like Holy Spirit. They're young, involved, and socially aware, and think being gay is a sin. How does Sojourn Church square its progressive image with some of its more regressive ideas? This was the beginning of the end for the 930. Let me read you the story's opening lines. Quote, We can all read the words on a flat screen monitors that hang before us, although it appears most don't need to. A five-piece band commands the stage come pulpit tickled by fingers of morning light refracted in the four-panel stained glass rendering of a tree behind it. Amid a refrain, the singer-guitarist, who looks like he just stepped out of one of those fragrance ads where the guys in artificially faded jeans pose with instruments they can't play, bays for the crowd to repeat the last verse. He steps back, chops a few chords out on his acoustic guitar, then lays down that last verse again, thick and heavy, eyes closed with reverence. Like any good performer, he won't let go of the moment. It's in that last line of In Christ Alone, delivered here as a declaration, a defiant mass voice from a room of raised arms, that you begin to understand this ritual, which to an outsider may look more like a pseudo-Christian orgy of self-conscious hipness than an actual church service. There is warmth here, yes, and an element of persuasion that's surprising. Although this place during this particular Sunday morning service is about as vanilla as a public radio playlist, I feel connected to something. I cannot intellectualize it, because to do so would ruin it. So I just give myself over to its inventive conceit, conservative Christianity paraded as hip youth culture. Throughout the story, he continues this aggressive and mocking tone, and he implies that whatever good we might do is just a veil, a way of concealing our regressive, hateful core. 
quote, in its purest form, Sojourn is a Southern Baptist church, and the message here is not a particularly progressive one. Pastor's counsel is strict adherence to scripture, which means that abortion is murder, men are the natural order leaders, and homosexuality is a sin from which gays need to be converted and redeemed. That usually doesn't go with pearloid buttons and horn-rimmed glasses, unquote. At one point, he quotes a pastor named Joe Phelps, who leads one of the most liberal congregations in the city. And Joe seems to find Sojourn's cultural image at odds with our beliefs. Joe says, quote, It's not intentionally disguised, but it's surprising to discover that such a contemporary, progressive context has such a conservative underpinning to it, unquote. He also interviewed a pastor named Aletha Fields, who is the leader of a local LGBT rights organization. Stephen writes, quote, She said Sojourn's pastors are stashing bigotry at God's feet rather than their own, and lamented that these discussions are still happening in the American South, while other parts of the country, the coasts, for example, have largely moved on, unquote. There are two interesting things to notice here. First, the coasts certainly are at the leading edge of progressivism in this country. But the idea that they've moved on from traditional beliefs is, at the very least, an exaggeration. Secondly, the language moved on is revealing. To say that the coasts have moved on reveals the story that progressives and secularists are telling about culture, as does the very word progressive. There's a narrative of history at work, a sense that society is evolving and improving. This means that our days, conservative Christians' days, are numbered. Society's moving on and we better get on board with their way of seeing things, or we'll be left behind marginalized. Of course, this isn't the first time that an idea like this has taken root. Throughout the 20th century, a number of cultural movements used this same language and shared a belief that their movement, their work, was going to reorder the world. And sometimes dissent had devastating consequences. Marxism, fascism, communism, national socialism, they all used this kind of language. And I know these comparisons might sound dramatic, but what they have in common is this way of thinking about history and destiny a sense of certainty and inevitability that they're right and that others need to get on board with the movement or get out of the way. This language about certainty should make us wary no matter who's speaking it. Stephen nods occasionally to the fact that many of our relationships with the city have been positive, but he ends on a somewhat conspiratorial tone. He writes, some of Sojourn's members, mostly high-ranking keepers of the church's vision, are buying up real estate nearby, also two neighborhood coffee shops, Quills and Sunnergas are owned by members, although the shops display no overt religious affiliation that may ultimately change the complexion of the neighborhood." End quote. The Leo was kind enough to publish a response to the story written by me. In addition, they published other letters from readers who thought the story was unfair or who wanted to voice their support for our work. But the best gauge of the reaction and the best description of what we experienced more broadly from people around us is the letters that the Leo published in support of the story. Here are a few excerpts. These, by the way, are read by an actor, and I should warn you, we're beeping out some explicit language. If you want to skip this altogether, you might jump ahead about two minutes. First, here's the editor's note. Thanks, readers, for your loud, broad response to last week's cover story, Smells Like the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, we only have the space to print a fraction of the responses, but please keep them coming. We do love to know you care. Here's a letter from someone named Richard Clark, who incidentally is not the Richard Clark that works for the magazine Christianity Today. After reading Stephen George's article, Smells Like the Holy Spirit, I couldn't help but smell the stench of patriarchy. Here's a letter from Kelly Armstrong. 
just finished reading the Sojourn article and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it all. It is quite possibly one of the more disturbing things I've read in quite some time. That being said, I can't quite put my finger on what has me so upset. Sure, they dressed up the place, put on a different face, and appear to do some good things in the community. But when you come right down to it, Sojourn's really nothing more than your typical right-wing nuthouse preaching prejudice and hate. Add in the fact that they're buying up property in the area, and it has all the trademarks of something far more sinister. This last one is from a guy named Richard Hodge, and buckle up, because it's a doozy. But it's also pretty typical of what we saw online shortly after the article's release. Smells like the Holy Spirit. Smells like holy sh** to me. I could care less how people choose to be religious, but what a waste of space to fill five pages of Leo to discuss a bunch of homophobes who treat women as second-class citizens and insist that the legal right to have an abortion is murder. Maybe in the coming weeks, she could fill five pages with the beliefs of white supremacists. Any good they attempt to do is destroyed by their intent to mind the American public. Reformed homosexuals, why don't you work on reforming your own archaic, idiotic, brain-dead beliefs? What's clear in both Stephen's story and the response to it is that the anger Sojourn in the 930 inspired was not about the way we ran the Arts Center, not the way events were held, not in any kind of subversive, bait-and-switch tactics, but in having conservative Christian beliefs in the first place. What you heard from the Leo was just a taste of what we heard online, in coffee shops, restaurants, and other hangouts in Louisville. Emails started rolling in pretty quickly <laughs> after that. And, you know, the cover image, it looked like they were making fun of us a little bit on the cover combined with the, the text. It made me nervous to, to see that come out. And then after reading it, I thought, oh, no, this is not good. I didn't realize, though, the impact that it would have long term. Along with the anger, we saw support from people outside Sojourn, people who'd been working with us. We got an email from agent for Joe Henry, um, who's a accomplished singer-songwriter in his own right, but also more known as a producer. Got an email from his agent um, saying, what's this all about? Joe's about to pull out of the show. Before I could even address it, really, I get a second email. Actually, I get a phone call from Billy Hardison at Production Simple, who was also working for WFBK at the time. And he calls and he says, we, we took care of this. And I said, what do you mean took care of it? And he said, well, a certain DJ at WFBK is really good friends with Joe Henry. And... She's behind you guys. Uh, she still supports you guys. She called him and basically talked him off the ledge and he's still going to do the show. It sort of uh, gave me a, a sort of a warning like, you know, this, this is probably going to happen more than this time. You know, you need to be prepared for this. <laughs> the tone was like, you know, can you believe these people? And it felt like they were outing us as if like we got the back story. We got the scoop, you know, this, they're different on underneath than what it looks like on the surface. I thought if I just keep doing the work, just push through and keep offering good content the best we can, maybe this will blow over. Over time, we started to notice uh, the crowds just kind of dwindled. It was sort of a, a bell that you couldn't unring, though. Um, once, once that was in the conversation, it had already changed people's perception uh, among you know, key people in the local art and music scene. We went from having, you know, kind of at our peak, having lots of prominent shows that were selling out or coming close to it and a lot of buzz to this show that probably a year ago would have would have filled the room. People aren't coming out for it and, and shows that we thought would do really well just weren't doing as well. We also had things going on like some activists for the LGBT community was sending out letters every time we would book a concert, we would announce it. And the very next day, somebody was sending a letter to the artist management saying, you should cancel this show. They're bigoted. We don't want to go to concerts there. 
And so the management would call us and usually the show would still go on, but it just kind of started to shrink the realm of possibility. It does seem like it was a very small but vocal minority of people that were hell-bent on shutting us down. The 930 is just one story amongst many. There is mounting pressure across our culture for Christians to align themselves with progressives and secularists or else to disappear from public, get on board or go away. There's an irony to it all and one that's been pointed out many times. The folks who may well be writing letters like the ones you just heard are also driving around in Volvos and smart cars with bumper stickers that say, coexist, featuring the symbols of various world religions. They use the language of diversity and tolerance and talk about a pluralistic society right up to the moment they encounter conservative Christianity. I had the chance to ask Albert Moeller about this. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary here in Louisville and a widely respected commentator on faith and culture. When the left gets into power, it operates just like what it's criticized. It's uh, perhaps uh, an awkward moment for honest liberals at this point, especially for those who've been uh, shouting about the, uh, the virtues of moral diversity. The awkwardness exists because of a shift in power. Just a few decades ago, the situation was the opposite. Conservative Christians were in a position to leverage their power and influence in ways that pushed back against the sexual revolution and liberalism. Their big assumptions and their big mistake was in believing that the power they had was here to stay. Little did they know how quickly things would change. Here's how Dr. Moeller describes it. If you're in the driver's seat or perceive yourself in the driver's seat of the culture, you don't have to think about it a whole lot. You take it for granted that this is the normal state of affairs. And this means that you lose a sense of distance from your own culture and an understanding of the fragility of any cultural moment. So that, that's certainly what conservative Christians have done. And I've lived long enough that uh, I was in a lot of the rooms where conservative Christians believed in the 70s and 80s and, and into the 90s that, uh, that we represented the culture-shaping dominant influence of the future. In retrospect, that looks sad and almost pathetic, but, uh, but it didn't at the time. And uh, th that's another reminder to us that things can shift very, very quickly in a society. The influence and power of conservative Christians continues to diminish. And stories like the 930, where Christians are sort of ambushed because of their traditional beliefs, happen more and more. In Mary Aberstadt's book, It's Dangerous to Believe, she tells story after story of people who were punished for practicing their beliefs, often in ways that were utterly harmless. Teachers, nurses, coaches, delivery drivers, and more. People who were punished for saying a prayer or for leaving out a crucifix. In an interview with the National Catholic Review, Aberstadt said she started paying attention to these stories after hearing about an increase in religious liberty lawsuits in Great Britain. And this is something that you hear all the time. Where Europe goes culturally, America is headed. So with that in mind, I wanted to talk to some Christians who live there and understand what's happening there and get a sense of where we might be headed to. In terms of the advance of secularism and the influence of a kind of publicly recognizable Christianity, we are ahead of you. There's always been a sort of secular agenda. There's always been people that have opposed the gospel. I think what it is is just a, a marginalization of privilege. You know, evangelicalism has been strong and influential. It used to be that you couldn't get a president of the White House unless he hung out with Billy Graham. The shift has been a, a move away from that privilege. And I would say we're, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ahead of you in that regression. This is Reuben Hunter. 
Reuben is a pastor who planted a church in London in a neighborhood called Shepherd's Bush. So we're in a borough of the city, about a mile and a half from the very center. And it is characterized by diversity, by secularism, by strong and flourishing Islam and everything in between, except a kind of clear and engaged, robust gospel witness. Being a Bible-believing conservative Christian in the UK, and especially in London, is a bit like being a unicorn. People don't know evangelicals. They don't interact with them. It's just not part of the culture. The Church of England is still around, but it doesn't nearly occupy the place it did a century ago. It's also a church whose beliefs have been reshaped by liberal theology. There are strong currents in the church moving towards blessing same-sex unions, and the news story in The Telegraph a few years ago cited a survey that said that a full one-third of the church's clergy don't actually believe in the resurrection. In 2015, the archbishops warned that dwindling numbers threatened the future of the church, noting that the average age of their members was steadily rising. So when the folks in Reuben's neighborhood meet him, a young, Bible-believing Christian who's not part of the Church of England, they don't quite know what to do with him. I think people have treated us in general with a bit of fascination on the one hand and a bit of suspicion on the other. We had this couple in for dinner one time and uh, they were asking about the church and we were talking just in general. He said something about how long have you been in the area? And and uh, and he said, oh, I bet you've had every single one of them around this table as if to say, you know, I know what you're up to. You know, you're you're trying to hoodwink us. You're trying to sort of, you, you know, you won't get me, mister. I know what you're about. You, you, uh, you Jesus freaks, you know. I think Europe is instructive in this. That's J.D. Koch. J.D. is the rector at St. Francis in the Fields Episcopal Church here in Louisville. Prior to that, he served at churches in Vienna and Berlin. A little while ago, I made a comparison between the language liberals and progressives use in the States and the kind of language that movements like Marxism and socialism used over in Europe. J.D. witnessed the effects of this firsthand when he was over there. One of my good friends in Germany, he grew up in East Berlin, and under the regime, it was perfectly fine to be a Christian just so long as you were okay with not having your children involved in any of the official state-run educational institutions, which, of course, under communism is all of them. And so these parents made the decision to sacrifice their children's ability to get official degrees on account of their Christian convictions. Now, that's something powerful. Some of you are thinking, this comparison is way too extreme. But just this year, the Department of Education passed new guidelines requiring schools to allow transgender students to use the bathroom of their choice. That means if you're a transgender girl, a biological male, administrators have to allow you to use the bathroom that you choose. It's not enough to simply accommodate these students with single-use bathrooms or showers. It must be left up to them. If the government finds that you're out of line with these guidelines, you risk losing federal funds for your schools. Now, that's an incredible amount of coercive power being applied to advance a progressive cultural agenda. I spoke to a high school principal, and they wanted to remain anonymous for reasons that are probably obvious. But they found the guidelines offensive. According to them, they've been accommodating transgender students' needs for years. A guideline like this says, hey, you seem too incompetent to handle this, so we're going to handle it for you. In addition, it puts children at the front lines of a culture war. And all of this is carried out under the banner of protecting transgender kids from bullies. The irony's rich. In order to protect people from bullies, the federal government becomes one. There are instances in Europe where people with my convictions were prohibited from adopting a child because they were going to raise them, for instance, to believe in sin. My child 
we'll go to church every Sunday and confess in our Anglican liturgy that we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. Nothing is more contrary to the spirit of the age. And I think that it will be harder and harder for people like me to be given um, state-sanctioned foster care, um, adoption. Reuben sees things in exactly the same way, but he adds another layer to it, the social layer, what it's like to try and have friends. I would say the mindset of everybody in my congregation is that they are marginalized, that they are tolerated to some degree if if they're nice, but mocked on the one hand, pitied on the other. So there's something, and I would say the psyche of our people, that just means they're on the back foot all the time. And that means they get weary. In this environment, it's tempting to act like a fundamentalist, to close yourself off in a little enclave that's safe and protected from the rest of the world, and to try to come into contact with unbelievers as little as possible. Because doing so always comes with a price. Either hang out with Christians that you like and socialize with them, or or choose a group of non-Christians who don't mind being kind of the butt of their jokes and stuff like that. I asked J.D. where he thinks we're headed here in the States, and his answer is interesting. On the one hand, he wants to show restraint, but then just a breath later, he gets downright apocalyptic. I don't want to say this because I don't want to be an alarmist. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a lot harder to to say you're a Christian um, in the next 20 or 30 years. I mean, I'm, I'm raising two small children right now myself, and I feel like I'm Sarah Connor, you know, in the Terminator movie. And I'm like, look, it seems okay now, but you're going to really have to know what you believe and why, because it's going to be tested in a way that, that it was never tested when I was your age. Now, in case it's been a few years since you've seen the Terminator, Sarah Connor is the mother of John Connor. And in the future, when robot overlords take over the earth, John Connor is the one guy who can lead the army that stops them. So Sarah Connor is raising her son in this perfectly normal world, but she's always warning him that everything's going to fall apart one day soon. And JD's saying, look, I don't want to be dramatic, but I feel like Sarah Connor, which obviously is kind of a dramatic thing to say. JD also said that where we are isn't unprecedented. In spite of the fact that we live in this modern age and there's this unique kind of pressure coming on us from the culture around us, really, at the core of it, we're still dealing with age-old issues. He actually rejects the idea that this is a secular age, as some people have called it, and says it's actually neo-pagan. Our gods might be better masked, but there's still the same temptations, power, money, sex, fame, all the same old human temptations, the same old gods that Christians and Jews before us have been rejecting and resisting for centuries. The same issues that confronted the Jews against the Hittites and the Malachites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Philistines is the exact same point that we find ourselves at today, which is that the gods that are not God will always compete for worship and sacrifice. And so the first commandment, that you will have no other gods but me, thus says the Lord, is as offensive today to people who do not have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their Lord, as it always has been, and yet provides the same comfort for just those same people as it always has. Reuben also wanted to resist the idea that we're living in a purely secular or godless culture. Citing a book by James K.A. Smith, he said, we're not living in a world dominated by the ideas of the so-called new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, but rather... We live in a time of profound spiritual melancholy. He mentioned these two quotes that kind of explain the difference between those two worlds. The two phrases are, I don't believe in God and I hate him. 
which I first heard Doug Wilson use about Hitchens as, a, as an atheist. He said, the two tenets of atheism, I don't believe in God, but I hate him. Um, but then Julian Barnes's phrase from um, Nothing to Be Afraid Of, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. That God-hauntedness, that is so true. And again, I mean, that, that's, that's the orbit of, of our society here. I mean, you would expect that in a world that is, that is spoken by the triune God and is telling a story and we're made in his image and we're, we're sitting on his lap to slap his face. You know, that, that is, uh, that's so true. I totally agree with Ruben on this. And I can't help but remember a phrase that David Foster Wallace, the novelist, wrote when he said, we're all dying to give ourselves away to something. In a world that is increasingly secularized, where Christians are marginalized, there's nonetheless a spirituality all around us. You see it in things like Oprah Winfrey or yoga or Soul Cycle or the recent rise of transcendental meditation. People are longing for God. People are longing for some connection to him. And in spite of the fact that our world is built around a spirituality of the self and of authenticity and of sexual liberty and all of this, the longing for God isn't going away. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. We're looking for him. We're searching for him. And that's why in spite of all these changes, in spite of everything that's happening, I still think the future is unwritten. And we don't know where our culture is going to be in 10 or 20 years. Interestingly, Dr. Moeller said something very similar when I talked to him. I am not expecting some reversion to the mean here. We're not going back to a time when conservative uh, evangelical revivalistic Christianity was in the driver's seat uh, in the culture. And we're not going back to when uh, institutional Catholicism uh, ha had the influence it once had in cities like New York and, and Boston and elsewhere. Uh, so wherever we are headed is somewhere new. But the gain for Christians is that, uh, that we're being forced by circumstances to think a lot more carefully. And we can hope that means a lot more biblically about how we should relate to the culture, what we should expect from the culture, what we should expect to, to contribute to the culture, and uh, how we can be a faithful gospel people uh, regardless of the cultural moment. I also spoke with Gregory Thornberry. He's the president of King's College in New York City, and he had an interesting take on this too. He mentioned Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, and that whole book is built around this concept of anti-fragility. Taleb says that some things, plants, species, ecologies, even some economies, are actually more likely to thrive when they're treated roughly. They are anti-fragile. Dr. Thornberry said, maybe that's the best way to think of the church. Maybe all this cultural pressure is actually an opportunity for the church to clarify its convictions, to unite more around our confession of faith, and to bear witness in a more prophetic and powerful way to a God-denying world. In other words, maybe all this rough treatment is actually a pathway to a deeper kind of flourishing. I have this picture in my office of this bombed out church during World War II, and its roof is off and it's in rubbles, but there's a priest standing up in the front and there's still a congregation. And I saw that picture and I've almost burst into tears when I first saw it. And I've carried it around with me now because as far as I know, this is the clearest picture of what we stand in today with respect to the church is that there will always be a congregation. There will always be people who stand on the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But the church building and the church influence and all of the trappings that it may have once had are in a precarious situation to put it. 
likely and probably already gone. So, to return to the question I asked at the beginning of this podcast, why Harbor? Why am I starting Harbor Media? What do we hope to accomplish? Well, there's no doubt things are changing. Christians live in the midst of a society that's increasingly secularized and, more certainly, increasingly intolerant of people with traditional religious beliefs. And at least for the foreseeable future, it seems like things are going to get harder before they get easier. But I don't think that's entirely a bad thing. The margins of society are where cultural change usually starts. Maybe the church needs to be there. Maybe we need to refine our prophetic witness. Maybe we need to learn, to borrow a phrase, to speak truth to power and to be more powerless. Maybe under this pressure, we'll find that the church is anti-fragile and that there's a deeper, better life that happens at the margins. So I want to build the Harbor Institute and Harbor Media as sort of a shelter in these storms. I want to bring together writers, artists, storytellers, and thinkers who can help us understand what's happening and navigate the world around us. And I want to make it a little bit easier, a little more plausible, for ordinary Christians to find their way through a world where their faith is resisted and contested on every side. I also want to tell stories about Christians that are working for common good and bearing witness to a different king and kingdom. I want outsiders to hear these stories and see the church in a better light, to see that there's something to lose if Christians are pushed out of public life. Most of all, I want to acknowledge all of this trouble and point to Jesus, who isn't surprised by any of it and has promised to guide his church through it. Thanks for listening to this special preview episode of The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope it gave you a picture of the kind of work we're planning to do and the audience we want to serve. The show was produced and written by me. Additional editing and mixing came from Mark Owens at Resonate Recordings. Editorial help came from Lachlan Coffee and Scott Slusher. Actually, while making this podcast, I discovered that I've been pronouncing Scott's last name wrong for 15 years now. So sorry about that, Scott. Glad we straightened it out. Our logos were designed by Chris Bennett. Our soundtrack is by Dan Phelps. You should go get his music. It's at oceanographicrecords.bandcamp.com. Our theme song is by Sarah P. and the Bitter Clingers. We'll have more episodes of this show in a few weeks, but for now, you should go subscribe to our other podcast. It launches next week. It's called Cultivated, Conversations About Faith and Work. That show features writers, artists, thinkers, all kinds of people telling their stories about work, their sense of calling, and how that intersects with their faith. People like Propaganda, or Andy Crouch, or Brett Locke, or Sandra McCracken, Alyssa Wilkinson, many, many more. So go subscribe to that now and hear a trailer in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to check out harbormedia.com, sign up for our newsletter. That'll let you know everything that's happening in the days ahead. We're just getting started here, so spread the word, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>